terms of dealing with investors, what's your approach there? I think being aligned on on like the overall strategy of the company, like finding people that that understand like this is a company that's going to fight climate change as opposed to trying to make um, and finding investors that think of like this is going to be a long-term big success like Verifin as opposed to like a, a smaller company that is profitable. Like just trying to make sure that everyone's aligned on those two things. What have been the marketing challenges for you folks? We are now honing in on a more regional strategy of, you know, holistic campaigns in, in Newfoundland, Quebec, BC, like Washington, like Facebook campaigns, local PR. Um, we may even do some offline media. We don't know yet, but trying to be more holistic and, and targeted in regions as opposed to being broad because that didn't really work for us. Like people are like, I don't have base, what's, like, what's a base for theater? And so we're just wasting ad dollars. I, I guess we'll dive right into it. Can you just talk about your role with Misa starting out and then kind of what it looks like today? Yeah. Um, so early days. Um, so Josh, so I actually joined Misa, like Josh started the Empire Homes like seven or eight years ago. Um, he was doing these energy audits, he'd tell you that, like how he's going to people's houses and saying the upgrade installation and all that. And right around the time that he graduated, uh, I was about to graduate from Mun. He was kind of honing in on this thermostat idea. And I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, no one of my friends, I did engineering, mechanical engineering, and no one at the time could get jobs because 2016, oil was down. No one was getting jobs. So I was like, I'll just join my brother and I'll help him get this business off the ground. And in, in the very early days, Josh was really focused on like building the product. And I did everything else. <laughs> so Josh was the one working with the developers, the engineers, trying to come up with the design. And then things that I was doing early days was getting the website up and running, um, meeting with various you know incubators, doing government grants, uh, just as much as I could to so Josh and the developers could focus on on developing, and I signed it everything else. And that also went into I think manufacturing as well and shipping. I was pretty involved in the early days of doing that. So going to Toronto trying to find a manufacturer and stuff like that. So anything that wasn't product development, I was doing in the early days. Yeah. And then, right. you know, as this kind of evolved, we basically have hired people to take away things from me. So early on, we hired a, someone in charge of marketing and sales. They took that away from me. And then we hired someone in charge of manufacturing and they took that away from me. And then customer support as well. Um, but I still oversee you know, um, the manufacturing, the customer support, and also currently IT at the company. With Josh, I, I had kind of a good overview yeah. of the business. Uh, like I mentioned, he had said about your contribution to the marketing approach that you took. Can you talk about that in terms of what you put together as, as a strategy and how you guys were able to become successful in your marketing? Yeah. Um, it, it sounds like there was more of a strategy than there was. Uh, basically, um, we knew we needed private investment to really finish the product and get it to market. Um, and the private investors right. at the time were saying, we like the idea of it, but can you show us customers actually want your product? And so then it turned into 
how do we do that? And at first we were going to do like a Kickstarter campaign, right? We spend all this money on the video um, and then you do your campaign and you promote it on Facebook and all that stuff. And that was pretty popular back then. Like Kickstarter was like really on the go, but uh, it's actually a lot of work and it's not very like iterative. Like you kind of got to do all the planning and then launch it and hope that it succeeds. Um, but in leading up to the Kickstarter campaign, uh, we launched the website and I decided for whatever reason at the time to make it so that you could pre-order the products. And then I was trying to get people to go to that pre-order site. Um, and so I was buying Google ads, just saw it online, buy Google ads and someone in BC overnight bought a thermostat. And that was kind of mind blowing to me that someone would pre-order a thermostat from a website. I was like, if I got one, can I get two? And then the second day, someone came. And then the third, and it just kind of snowballed into the point where we got like 100 pre-orders over the course of like a couple of weeks. And it was very like organic. It wasn't like a lot of strategy behind it. It was just like, can we? And that's what actually, uh, we actually collected, I think, 20,000 pre-orders. We didn't charge the card. We just showed to investors that we have 20,000 worth of orders. Could you fund the business so we can get the product to market. And that's literally the strategy behind it. It was very organic and very kind of just iterative. And, you know, once you got the first customer, we like, we had a chat on the site. So if someone asked a question, I would answer it. And then I would add that right to the site the next, like the same day. And so the next customer wouldn't have that problem. And so it was just like iterative for like really a good couple of months there just trying to get orders in. And that's what really kind of was, I think the true success to Misa in the early days was getting that to convince investors to put money in. That was all through Kickstarter, you said? It wasn't Kickstarter. It was actually a, a pre-order site called uh, uh, Celery. And it allows you, we worked at Kickstarter, but this was the pre-order to Kickstarter. And we realized that this is actually working. We didn't need to do the Kickstarter because that's a lot riskier, right? Like it's public and, and the investor literally said, if you fail on Kickstarter, we will not invest in you. <laughs> I chose not to do Kickstarter. And, and decided to do this thing that was kind of our own, but it worked beautifully. Right. I think Josh mentioned that. Where were you in terms of pre-orders before you actually had a product ready to ship? It, by the end of the day, it was almost 600 grand in pre-orders. It was crazy. He also mentioned there was like a, a three month window where you were waiting for that first sale. Um, it was like Christmas Eve, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like we were, we, we knew we needed to get some sort of traction sometime in September to get in investment. And it was really just like, do we do Kickstarter? Do we do that pre-order site? And it was like three window, like it was like a three month window for it. Something like it just kind of turned on one day that someone was willing to pre-order. And like, I remember being in Christian's Eve service and just seeing someone in the stage buy 10 thermostats. And I was just like, this is awesome. And that was pretty huge. How were they finding out about that? What was that through the, the pre-order platform that you posted it on? Uh, someone would just Google smart thermostat for baseboard and I was buying keywords in Google. So we didn't have a presence. Um, and so like a, we didn't have any organic search. Our website was brand new. So I was buying ads for kick for that. And then as soon as it started working, like I did a, a whole like two day course on Udemy on how to optimize Google ads. And so I was able to get even more ads and do it for cheaper. And that was pretty cool. So 
Yeah, like during Christmas break, I watched an entire Google Ads course for Christmas break to try and ramp it up. How did you handle that? Like the, the Google AdWords aspect targeting the USA? What was the geographical focus for you? I obviously had in North America. So instead of like, it was targeted in stuff because people were searching for the product. Like people wanted a smart thermos every baseboard and I was just buying those keywords. Like I wasn't like showing Google display ads to people that were in the, you know, unaware stage. It was people who wanted a smart thermos after baseboards. And, and I was able to buy that keyword pretty cheaply. Right. Because there were no competitors. No competitors at the time yet. Because typically that's a big challenge, right? You, you've, you've got this, uh, you're trying to target this huge yeah. area and your digital media budget either has to be big um, or it gets, it gets snatched up yeah. really fast, right? These were highly motivated, high intent, early adopters. And that was really the you know, people willing to wait a year for the product. You don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but I, I'm just curious, what would have been your monthly digital media spent at that time? We had no, we were fighting like two grand a month on credit cards with like no private investment, just minor Josh's personal credit cards. And we were, we were just like, this, we better get this investment because otherwise we are toast. Wow. So <laughs> two grand targeting North America. That's, uh, you guys are lucky because I guess the fact that there wasn't a lot of, uh, the, the, the demand was there. People are searching for it, uh, but there wasn't yeah. other competing bids and stuff. Yeah, the entire strategy once we got one was like, we need to get private investment. Let's do what we can and let's hope it doesn't turn south. And luckily it didn't. So initially kind of a self-finance marketing campaign to show the demand, the pre-orders, and then bring in the private money to to properly scale the business. Yeah, that was the, that was the entire like game plan was we need private investors and we just got to show traction. Whatever we do is show traction to get that investment. We did that. How long were you wearing the, the marketing hat? Uh, up until August of 2017, so about a year. About a year, okay. And where did you guys go from there? You brought somebody in-house? Yeah, actually, funny enough, it was actually my prof. <laughs> so uh, in, in, in my last semester of university, so here's the timeline. This would have been January of 2016. Uh, I took an entrepreneurship course at Mun, and we ran the idea of Misa through it. Um, I, as the business case, you could choose every business you want. We chose Misa. I was doing that during school and, and, and my prof there, he was, uh, he really liked the Misa story. And, uh, after about a year, we brought him on board and he's been kind of, he's a really data, data driven engineer marketer. And, uh, he took it over since then. And he's still so, doing it. Yeah. What's his name? Uh, Don Goosens. Goosens. Yeah, he's in charge of all of our marketing and sales now. Cool. Yeah. Might be my next interview. You, you couldn't believe, like, he was like, he was like, this is never going to work. <laughs> I was like, we'll try it. And then it happened. What's not going to work exactly? He's like, he, he, he couldn't believe that someone was going to pre order a thermostat a year in advance. Like, there's no way you can convince people to do that. It's not like a car, though. Right, it, like it's it's what a eighty dollar risk. Yeah, oh, and the beauty though is we weren't even charging the credit card. We were only filing the number. That went a D of risk for a lot of people, right? Because like there was no upfront cost to them. They were just holding their spot in line with their credit card and 
because then we use the private investors to fund the development and the first inventory. Right. So when the product was available, how did that work? You say, okay, can we charge your card now? Is that? Well, it was already authorized and we just said, we're charging this card next week. And then we charged a bunch of cards and literally 400, 500 grand came in the account. Some cards got declined, but uh, it was fine. Did you see a drop off? Was there much of that going on? People over the course of the year saying, meh, I'm going to take my name off. There were some people who were like, I've been waiting like too long, guys. Like, because we said in January when we started this, that we were going to ship in September. We missed September. We said October. We missed October. We kept getting delayed, delayed. And then February, some people bailed out. Some people said not worth it. But 80% of people was fine with it. And really, like the pre-order customers were really just the, you know, the early traction and they were also helping define the product right like we were like showing them images like what do you think of this didn't like it changed it and then like we were iterating with them and then um some some declined but that was fine because we were able to keep going with the new customers after that and it was shipped like same day what's your part now in uh the marketing piece for for misa uh, i would say very very little very high level i wouldn't be like we should do this campaign, but I was like, maybe we should consider going and Best Buy and Home Depot. Or um, it's very, like, I just basically give them ideas. I don't really involve in the day-to-day execution anymore. Just kind of, and not a lot of ideas, just some ideas. It's not like I'm not taking credit for it, but. Yeah, yeah, cool. I, I, I had uh, heard through the grapevine, I think one of your writers is uh, Brad Pretty. Brad is, uh, used to work with us. Is Brad still with you? Yeah, so Brad was a writer for us. I think I had a chat with one of you folks back when you hired him, uh, but that organic search and content writing and so forth, I, I just heard to the grapevine that you guys had done a really good job of that. I'd seen some great organic results with it. Can you talk about that or? No, I mean, I think it's still, in, the, in certainly in the early days, that was driving like 30 or 40% of the revenue. Because what was great was I was buying ads for smart thermostats for baseboards. But then we were writing organic content so we could stop buying ads. And so, <laughs> and that worked really well. And is that where you are now? It's, is like you have a lot less dependence on Google AdWords? Yeah, like Google Ads is kind of like 80% of revenue now, it might be like 10 or 15%, and it's going less like every, every year is more organic, you know. Like if you search now, smart thermostat baseboard, we have like, it's like Misa and then our Amazon listing and then our Best Buy listing and then like five other blog posts for, right? So it's like, we just kind of own the, the keywords that are relevant to us now. How long do you, how did it take to uh, reduce that, that dependence on Google AdWords? I would say it was a good two years of just like, or a year and a half of just writing content that kind of matched the keywords that we were buying. Like, for example, we, like a, a blog post that brings in like hundreds of thousands of dollars is how to install a nest on baseboard heaters. We have a blog post that says, don't do that by Misa. <laughs> that's, that's what you got to yeah. do. And, and what would have been the type of volume and, and pace of, of content publishing? I mean, back when there was a lot of low hanging fruit and we had like you know, browse focused on that as opposed to like other things, like we were trying to do blog posts like weekly if not month yeah weekly if not yeah it was just so at the time there was so much low like 
I think even Don says like this, this was very unique where there was so much low hanging fruit and so much demand. Like you usually don't see that, right? You usually don't see uh, such disalignment in a market. If there's demand, there's usually competitors already doing a good job. And there wasn't. There was a lot of demand and no competitors. And we just used the early tactics of Google ads and organic traffic to get to where we were. What marketing touch points have you added to what you're doing? Yeah, so we're, we're so once you kind of did Google ads, the next one that worked really well was, and it's less and less more effective these days, but Facebook ads was, was pretty good back in, you know, last year. Um, Amazon ads are really good. So we're on Amazon, but Amazon has now a whole new advertising platform and, and it's actually kind of new. So they're making a killing on it because not, not a lot of people use Amazon ads. Um, and now it's really like working with the retailers to kind of like use their marketing programs. So we get their reach, like face, uh, face Best Buy has marketing campaigns where they'll send it to their email list and stuff like that. So we're, we're into that stuff now. What have been the marketing challenges for you folks? Our product right now, our, our current suite of products is pretty niche. So like you can't just show an ad for smart thermostats because it is unlikely in North America, you're going to have that heating system. So you, you kind of had to be geographic with it. So like everyone in Newfoundland has spaceport heating. That is not true other places of the world. So like you got to be, we are, we, we, we are now honing in on a more regional strategy of, you know, holistic campaigns in Facebook. I mean, uh, in Newfoundland, Quebec, BC, like Washington, like Facebook campaigns, local PR. Um, we may even do some offline media, we don't know yet, but trying to be more holistic and, and targeted in regions as opposed to being broad, because that didn't really work for us. Like people are like, I don't have base, what's, like, what's a baseboard heater? And so we're just wasting ad dollars or even Google ads. Like we tried experimenting buying just like smart thermostat but like we were just wasting so much money on that traffic because they didn't have baseboard heating. That was the hard, so it was a blessing and a curse because it allowed us to get customers early on, but it's been kind of a hindrance to scaling it, right? Because most marketing channels are very mass market. You just buy all the ad space you can and show the people, right? And that's, you can't do that. So we had to find different approaches to be kind of tailored and unique. Yeah, that totally makes sense. In the PR, you, you mentioned that, uh, say with the, the Forbes article and, and the different uh, publicity that you're getting, is that coming from your team yeah. looking for those opportunities and trying to get those profiles or is that stuff just happening organically? No, the, uh, the big ones that you've seen, Forbes and stuff, those have been organic. Um, and even those that like, we tried to get on the list early on, they're like, what's a baseboard heater? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, and maybe the, the game has changed a bit where uh, you, you're seeing a lot of these retailers, uh, these big publications move away from pure impressions to driving affiliate traffic, right? So Forbes, for example, they were about, you know, primarily the display advertising, showing ads on their site. A lot of people have ad blockers these days. And so that's not really effective. So you're seeing, you know, NBC, Forbes, um, Tech Hive, like they're moving to affiliate where they're trying to, if they refer someone to Amazon, they get a percentage of the sale. So I think that's helping us because people are seeing that we're doing really well on Amazon. 
And so like, we're going to post about it so we can get some affiliate traffic. Because you, you go to that Forbes article, they don't actually list Get Misa, our website. They list the Amazon link, which they earn a commission from. Ah, okay. Interesting. So based on the Forbes profile, has that opened yeah. up a new train of thought around like what other affiliates are out there and, and can we, can we get our, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's great to see, you know, Forbes and NBC and all these other ones. And we're actually like layering them in, like as more social proof, like you can see, Oh, from Forbes, it must be a real company. So we're really layer, and we're doing that with retailers, right? We're like, hey, mention Forbes and DC. Um, we're a real company. We're like the best solution for this product category. So it's more just getting it and using it as a, as kind of social proof. So what's the geographical focus today, and and how did you decide on that that geographic focus? It's really just been, just like being broad at first. And then you can actually see like the hotspots in our sales, like is very clear. Like there's Washington, Quebec, um, parts of New York, cabin country in Ontario, Newfoundland. Um, like our sales, like it's funny, like you could see that trend two years ago and the percentage of stuff has not changed. It has basically remained the same regions. Um, and then, so a big proponent of our business is working with utilities to offer rebates so people can get the product much cheaper. And so, you know, designing campaigns around where we already have rebates, I mean, that's a no brainer, right? And so really just being more holistic about it. Yeah, right. Okay. Like the take charge campaign yeah. locally. Take charge locally um, in BC, like where we saw a lot of growth in the last two years, BC Hydro, their main utility came out with a $40 rebate. And so like we were just buying so much Facebook ads to promote that rebate. And we actually blew the, like, the expectations out of the water because we were doing like the, they were just thinking like, you know, be organic, people would see the product, but we were promoting that rebate with our product. You blew what out of the water? Sorry. Like they were like, like oh, well, 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 maybe I have a thousand customers use this rebate. And it was someone like 10,000 customers, like 10 times that they were thinking because we were promoting it on our side. That was a win for them too, I'm guessing. Yeah, they were very happy. Yeah, yeah, well, that's another great channel. And if you were kind of to layer it, layer it out like direct to consumer versus going through a utility, what does that ranking look like? Our bread and butter right now is still direct to consumer. Like that's where we still earn most of our money. Um, and I think over time it will make it might flip to be more you know heavy on the retail, heavy on utilities. But right now. We do a really good job, like like Don, like he's done a, a wonderful job on on our e-commerce, and we like it there because we earn the most money, and it's the best consumer. Really, like a customer can buy from us, like we can have that dialogue. Like before you buy the product, here's talk to a customer support, or once you buy the product, like send them information about the product installation setup ahead of time, and when you sell through like a, a retailer, you kind of lose that customer relationship to a certain degree. So we really like going through our website a lot, but um, I really see like my opinion, the utilities and the retailers as like acquisition um, channels, like get our name out there, acquire new customers, and then we can, you know, maintain that relationship with them through the app and stuff like that. Do, do you have a good sense for what your, your key target persona is? You guys talk a lot about energy reduction, that green message. Is it millennials primarily or... Is it across the two demographics and for different reasons? So there's people like me and my brother who are the young 
tech enthusiasts for maybe first house want to spend money on their house and they buy tech gadgets um the energy savings for them is is an afterthought right is more about the cool tech part so that's a large portion of the market for us but then there's people like my dad who just purely see it as economics saving money um so they're a bit older you know more established 45 to 50. so really just two and we're actually having good success um marketing to women and advertising the uh, comfort piece and the aesthetic piece so i mean it looks really nice in your house and we did a lot of campaigns in the summer about home renovations and aesthetics those did really well with women audiences say with the utilities uh, and that strategy what, what are the challenges there i'm guessing it's uh slower decision making is probably one issue yeah some of that um some of them are like um so a lot of the utilities, they they get funding and some of the requirements are, it has to be the Energy Star certified product. It's great, but then Energy Star does not certify baseboard heating thermostats yet. And so there's been a huge stumbling block with in the US market in particular getting these rebates because we're not Energy Star certified. Dog. <laughs> but, uh, but we are working with we're working with Energy Star to uh, work with them to develop a standard so we can get that Energy Star certification to be eligible for more rebates. Okay, so have you had success with utilities in the U.S. as well, or or just Canada? Yeah, for, yeah in uh, Washington, there is a utility called PSE, and they're rolling out a uh, a seventy five dollar per thermostat rebate. So customers get me some bucks in Washington State, which is awesome. Uh, yeah, they a lot of volume. You're selling in U.S. dollars. I guess you're, you're doing both. Are you Canadian and U.S.? Which is nice for a Canadian company because we uh, get the exchange rate benefit. Yeah, no, no kidding, awesome. man. That's awesome. We we have uh, we work with U.S. companies, and and that's one of the key value propositions is is the currency, the savings from the from the currency exchange. Yeah, we can undercut the U.S. people completely. Exactly. Especially when you're breaking into a market, you want to get those initial customers. Yeah, for sure. You guys have also, I think, been unique in that you rely wholly, almost wholly on, on an internal marketing team, which uh, seems to be really working, working really well for you guys. Is that the case or is there yes. some kind of, you know, we go outside when we uh, need this, this type of marketing service, uh, but we do these types of things internally? Do you know um, Lauren Pike? He's my father-in-law, actually. Oh, yeah. okay. Yes, and, I uh, do. He was like, "You guys are weird. I've never seen a company have an internal marketing team before." <laughs> well, I mean, uh, more so. I think. I mean, it, it does exist, uh, but starting out is, uh, I think, what's unique. It seems like, boom, like right off the top, you guys went straight to an internal marketing team and and um, had success with it right away. And that's what I think is more unique is how successful you guys have been so quickly. In, in the early days, the, the main benefit was being so iterative and agile, right? Like the product was changing like very frequently, the marketing campaigns, like we didn't know what our customer was, so we were iterating that. We didn't know what our channels were iterating. Like it was just really fast iteration and, and having the internal teams, that was key in the early days. Um, and we know we still like maintain the pretty light and we keep growing our internal team. And we like that a lot because we think, well, 
we'll go back to like the tactics, but just creatives. We think design is really important. So we put a lot of emphasis on design and, and you can see that in our, in our products and our marketing, we think design is really important. So we choose to keep that in-house. Um, we've had, had success with consultants um, kind of guiding an internal team. So we do like outsource some things like high level, like Facebook planning or, or uh, Amazon planning. Um, but yeah, we kind of, just the speed of, of iteration, like just for example, that rebate I was telling about Washington, like we only heard about that last week and now this week we're going live with the campaign, right? I think it'd be very hard to do if all of our marketing efforts were outsourced, right? So just the speed at which things are changing and, and things like that, we find uh, having an internal team helps the most. And you had the, the creative ready to go and just change headlines and those kinds of details. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Yeah, change out the logos, uh, add in the details and launch the page within you know a week or two. Like, that's pretty awesome. That is, yeah, it, it makes sense. In terms of those higher levels, say uh, Amazon planning, have you had to go outside of Atlantic Canada to get that kind of expertise? Yeah, so we actually work with like a lot of consultants outside of Atlantic Canada, um, somewhere in the States, somewhere in Ontario, some in BC, I think. But uh, we've probably worked pretty well, like, um, because we'll find like no one truly cares about it as much as we do. And so, and there's been plenty of times where like they, they start off, we've had it before, they start off good and then they kind of taper off or we have a really good account person and then they leave and we get a junior person out of nowhere. But we find it works really well is getting like the higher level strategics kind of coaching our team more junior. And then I find that relationship works, that works really well for us. And we do that in other parts of our business as well. What does that look? I mean, are, are they doing workshops or like weekly calls, monthly calls, strategic reviews, looking through things and stuff like that? Got you. Okay, just just more high level, keeping an eye on numbers, yeah. making suggestions, and and uh, high level tweaks yeah. and, and so forth. Yeah. Okay, cool. I, I think the the other topic I was I was impressed with was just hearing Josh talking about. Uh, the whole supply chain piece, which is yeah. obviously a big one. Yeah. And you mentioned yeah. Josh was focused on creating the product and you were there to, yeah. to take care of everything else, yeah. marketing yeah. and operations yeah. and, and supply chain and so on. Uh, I've heard the part about yeah. going to Ontario and yeah. just walking in the two of you and saying, yeah. uh, how do we do this? And then yeah. ended up kind of going, I think, direct to China. Just, just talk about that in terms of um, how you figured all that out. <laughs> Uh, a lot of, there's a lot of reading, a lot of blog posts. Um, there is actually a local guy, Morris Tuff with Blue Drop, or I mean Blue Driver, sorry. Um, he was helping us out, kind of give us some advice in the early days. Um, there's other people around locally that were helping. Um, but a lot of it was just, in the early days, it was just like figuring out, it was pretty crazy. Like we just went up there, flew up there. I was like, we need to, we'll, we're going to spend $500,000 are you interested? And we had a lot of interest and um, just kind of in the early days, we stumbled through it. And, um, and that's why we chose the one in Toronto because the main reason is so we could learn faster. Like we could just fly up whenever there was an issue and learn and watch it as opposed to being in China. Right. So like we kind of learned the process um, in, in Toronto, but then um, we went over to China and we found some manufacturers to some other references that we knew. Um, but really, it's been the key to our success is uh, 
once we pass it off to someone else was there's a lot of great people here who worked in oil and gas in supply chain in procurement in in contracts and all that skills same skill set is relevant to buying what we do uh, for example our, our vp of operations her name is nola and there would be no meast about nola because she saved her butt many times and she came from oil and gas and she's just uh, all that same skill set she learned there was directly applicable to what we are doing. So that was really kind of instrumental. What does that look like today? I mean, obviously, you know, COVID has yeah. put a damper on travel, but um, it, like before yeah. that, what was travel back and forth to China? Is that a, is that a regular part of the job? Not right now. Uh, there, it was the early days to go to China, set things up, but uh, we kind of slowed things down a bit, pushed out some timeline so we could like do things a bit slower remotely like instead of instead of like someone going there and approving the samples on the spot we get to get the mail the samples to us and that takes time but it's been working we've gotten through it and uh, and we have a really good manufacturer that you know we've been working with two years and to be honest they know how to make our products better than we do so they've been good to deal with so now you're communicating directly with with this person in china yeah, we have a whole like we have a whole we have a whole manufacturing supply chain team, and they have a whole manufacturing supply chain team, and they're talking every day, sometimes even at night. Got you. So, and in terms of uh, uh, communication barriers, uh, was was that a, an issue? And, and like, how did you sort through? How did you sort through that? We, we went there really like there are some places in China where you can get your product made. You know, like you wouldn't tell anyone you did it. But there, where we chose, like it was a really good manufacturer. They, they had a lot of great quality control. You can tell they treat their their employees right. Um, so like that helped was going the really reputable manufacturer in the early days. So in terms of you, like for you personally, what, what's been the biggest headaches and challenges uh, so far? I think just there's uh, there's a lot of great things at Misa and there's, there's some not great things like you're, I don't know, like we're missing a part and we can't get a product made or something. It's just like managing the highs and lows is like, you can't get, you can't get too excited and you can't get too down and uh, just managing, you know, there's just so many things that me and Josh see on a day to day that just get a bit overwhelming some days. But um, I think the, the hardest part in my opinion was getting it all set up. Like the first product, getting it certified, getting it designed, doing the software the first time, getting the factory, like all that was really hard. Um, and we worked a lot, but once we got past that, it was kind of been more different challenges, but we have a, we have a team that takes care of it. Um, so it's been good. That's a great thing about uh, a team too, is, is that people come in, they have a fresh enthusiasm. And I think sometimes they don't realize, but they're, yeah. they're carrying the leadership at times. You are you are one hundred percent right. Like the two people are uh, to have the energy to to keep it going, and the other people are might be a bit uh, take the backseat a bit. And I'm sure I've certainly seen that new employees taking the lead, and then you get more new employees and they take the lead. And yeah, the the, the owners or the the founders, um, you know, they go through cycles, and and there's times where you 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 are feeling fatigued, and uh, that that's the great thing about a team. There's there's no doubt. I would say the key to success, 100%. In the early days, uh, we assembled a really strong team from the very early days. Um, bring in the, the senior managers. Uh, we actually had a lot of senior managers um, pretty early on. Like it was mostly senior managers at one point, but that was good because they took a lot of responsibility. 
and they grew their teams, right? And so, well, yeah, that was instrumental for sure. I've seen some companies local here, and I've seen the kind of the opposite approach where like they're calling more of the shots and we just did not do that. I know how hard it is uh, on a smaller scale, you know, recruiting yeah. talent and, and being able to discern, yeah. uh, you know, we're, we're hiring this person, but not this person going through that yeah. process of onboarding them and getting them uh, to a point where they're um, self-managing and, and, and productive, but particular that recruitment and identifying that talent, was that on, on you guys to do that? In the early days. Yep. Um, we were doing that a lot um, and almost, all of them came from references that we knew. Like we knew this person, you should talk to this person, they're great and they're looking for some, a new challenge. And we brought them in and, and they really helped. And then that person knew two other people as well, right? Um, so like really the building the team was just kind of, and then just making sure that everyone kind of had the same kind of viewpoints and, and way of doing things like, I often say to Josh, maybe this sounds kind of not humble at all, but I feel like Misa has a high percentage of smart and really nice people. And those are the two things I think are really important. You got to be really smart and you got to be nice to work with. It really makes it easy when everyone is like that. <laughs> it, it makes it a, a nice, it really makes it the job pretty easy when everyone is, is really smart and nice to get along with. And, yeah, I think the other thing is being fair and setting expectations, but also enforcing those expectations. I'm sure you've had to do that in terms of moving people along that didn't turn out to be a good fit. And that, that's part of maintaining a great team yeah. as well, I think, is is being uh, making those yeah. those hard decisions when you need to. Yeah, that's a couple of times. Not easy. Uh, in terms of from a leadership point of view, uh, it sounds like you're moving more into a high level leadership role now with the business. How do you find that role and what were the challenges with that? I read a good quote the other day. It's like, what is the job of leadership? And it's to like listen to everybody and then kind of make a decision that's best for the company. And so we kind of had this problem yesterday where people are making decisions um, for their own department, not necessarily the entire business. And so, you know, having to listen to everyone and um, there's still work with imperfect information and trying to still come up with the right solution that works for everybody like that. That's a big part of our job. Um, another one is like just setting examples as opposed to like telling people what to do. Like I think me and Josh are good to just live the culture, set examples. For you guys, what is the, the guiding key metric? Uh, for example, you, you know, I've heard people like Elon Musk say, uh, forget about the share price. Uh, I've heard Jeff Bezos say the same thing. They don't get caught up in share price. They have, uh, they have a different focus. And uh, I'm just curious, like what, what is for Misa, for the management team, like what is your key focus? I mean, for, for Josh, who's mainly Josh and the reason something exists is, are we fighting climate change, right? Is, is our products, is our company working on things that make a difference in climate change? Um, that one, I also resonate with that one a lot, but like it's more so like the, that's Josh's vision and that's helped attract more people like who also want to fight climate change and stuff like that. We're only gonna develop products that help that. We're not gonna develop products that don't do anything to climate change. So that one for sure is huge. Um, other ones that are also there that may not be the biggest focus, but I really like uh, helping the local tech economy. Like I think that's really important. and 
I think it's pretty cool to employ 80 people in Newfoundland that jobs that didn't exist five years ago. Like that, I think that it really helps me get going in the morning. And um, we're also like we, everyone's customer comes as a customer assessed, but like we read every single review that comes into Misa. Like we have a Slack channel, every employee is in it, and we read every good review and every bad review, and we try and fix the bad reviews as fast as possible. So customers really like their product, and those are the really three things. And you focus on those things. I think it's cliche, but the money will come after, right? <laughs> Yeah, Josh shared that. I thought that was a really cool idea. It's like having two or three focus focus groups every day, uh, but a lot more efficiently, obviously. That was like the key in the early days was every sale came into the company and everyone looked at it and every review came in the company, everyone looked at it. And like those two things were like a, a feedback loop that was just happening. And I didn't even know we were doing it right. It was just something I just wanted to do. I thought it was cool. And then it turned out to be a huge thing. In terms of dealing with investors, what's your approach there? I guess two things, uh, what, what are the things they care about and what do you focus on in terms of dealing with them? Yeah, it's a good question. I think being aligned on, on like the overall strategy of the company, like finding people that, that understand like this is a company that's gonna fight climate change as opposed to trying to make um, and finding investors that think of like, this is going to be a long-term big success, like Verifin, as opposed to like a, a smaller company is, is profitable. Like just trying to make sure that everyone's aligned on those two things, I think are really important. What keeps you up at night in terms of, um, changes in the marketplace or threats and, and so forth? <laughs> I, I sleep really well, so, but I'm trying to think what I think, but a lot, um, I think um, our strategy of trying, like we have the baseboard heater and we have this window AC one coming out, right? I think the strategy we're taking of taking on a bunch of different products, um, will we dilute our efforts and will companies that only focus on those products, will they beat us, right? <laughs> and so I just wonder like if, if, we, if we are not focused on the right things, will we eventually stall out? <laughs> to competitors that are solely focused on one thing or if we don't get the growth we need, like we're investing in things that customers don't really care about and we stall out. I think those types of things I think about a lot. Do you guys do any formal research, whether it's qualitative or quantitative to uh, determine what the customer is interested in? Not yet. That's something we want to start doing is hiring research people to understand the landscape better and Right now is just me, a lot of people, not just me drive, a lot of people just read as many blog posts. I read every tech review site I can daily and just try and get the pulse on the market. And and uh, what worked for us, me and Josh, was just building what we wanted. It turned out there's a lot of people like me and Josh, but what wanted what we wanted. <laughs> and that's actually really how, like, like, we were able to, like, well, like, meet customer number one, or my, my dad is actually. And uh, we were able to work out all the kinks with him. Because <laughs> uh, a lot of people, like, they, Companies, they build products or things that they don't use themselves. I think that's really hard. Yeah, it reminds me in a way of uh, Apple and the things I've heard um, Steve Jobs say, you know, way back is, is you know, building something that, that we like as opposed to being short-term growth driven or uh, totally externally driven uh, or, or whatever type of uh, other influence that, that, that might influence product development. 
I, I want to be more like Apple. I think it's like focus really good on, on the product experience and, and have a long-term view and have things work together. And I think if you do those over a long period of time, I think um, those are really important. But like it kind of goes back to your question, having a long-term view and it's hard to always remind people about that, right? It's like, if we focus on these right things, we will be, we'll do the right thing. But some people are like, oh, we should focus on this specific tactic really quickly and, and stuff like that. And I mean, Josh, I really like that kind of thinking. So that's, that can be always a challenge. With these other products, Josh mentioned different ones. I assume uh, the goal is to cross sell those products uh, to existing customers. Is it, is that, is that working? Like how, how have you found that, um, that strategy as, as it plays out? No, we, uh, the most, the early days are of our pre-orders with the AC product, 80% of them were, were returning customers. Yeah. Cause they, they like the product and they got an AC. So they all to buy the Misa AC as well. So it definitely is repeatable and scalable and it's good. Let's say five years from now or two years from now, how many products do you think you, you guys will have? Yeah, I hope I, I hope we release one or two products per year. That's kind of a good cadence, I think. Just remind me, where, where are you now in terms of uh, product line? We uh, are just about to launch our third product. That, that's another Steve Jobs quote that really stood out to me was uh, when he came back to Apple, he said, we need to, we have way too many products. We need to pick five things and they, they, they sort of got rid of the other things they were doing. And he talks about that, that ability to say no, the, the, the power of no, the ability to focus on a finite amount of uh, objectives. I don't know where they are with that now, but uh, that finite list seemed to really, at that time, um, help the company do a, a dramatic turnaround and, and really go deep and make five incredible products. And that's a good point. Like there's other smart home companies that started thermostats and then they branched into security cameras and stuff like that. I think they kind of lost their way. And me and Josh do right now to be laser focused on thermostats and HVAC. Yeah, because I, I think if it's a, a good product line, it's going to be connected. And, and, you know, for you guys, you're seeing, you know, 80% of current customers are buying the products uh, on a repeat basis. And, uh, you know, if, if you're going into other products that are unrelated or, you know, um, and, you know, different markets, uh, I guess the question becomes, are we diluting our focus? Are we, are we going to erode, you know, the, the momentum, momentum that we have? And based on what you've shared, it sounds like you're developing the right products and you've got repeat business coming in real strong. Uh, I think that would encourage me a lot to say we're, we're building out in, in the right way. So just in closing, the, the other goal with this uh, channel is really to provide inspiration for uh, Atlantic Canadian businesses during a, an unprecedented time. Uh, there's still a, a, a lot of uncertainty for, for businesses uh, here in 2021. What would your advice be to the business community now in terms of how to operate and, and think, you know, as we, um, as we come out of this, uh, hopefully come out of this, this COVID period? I think maybe it's, Everyone's been said this to death, but going online and going digital, that's the way. Because uh, customers don't know or are located in Newfoundland. <laughs> no one really knows. And uh, people buy online, right? It's easy to reach people. You can reach people in Newfoundland, just as easy to reach people in BC, right? There's no difference. And I think the more you embrace the online, the better. Like We work with people in Florida and in California and BC all the time. And it just... It, 
because we're all online, there's really no difference. Like even for example, Home Depot pre-COVID, um, they said you would have to fly down here numerous times to get a deal done, but we did it all virtual. So I think just more companies embracing going online and, and those types of channels, I think uh, can only hurt, help align to Canada because the market is kind of small, right? Like five, new find like five hundred thousand, two million Atlantic Canada, still kind of a small market. There's millions of people in the states and other parts of the world, right? So I think, and if you're online, there's no difference to them. If you're in Newfoundland or if you're in BC or California, I'm sure there was moments uh, last year, maybe this year, where where you had your own worries and questions about uh, uh, your own business. Uh, how did you manage your your personal approach last year? No, I think the answer to the question is like we were very adaptable. Like we went straight to online and Zoom within like a day and we didn't skip a beat. Like we didn't, like there was no question of, well, kind of little lull right now until we're back in the office. It was purely online, work didn't stop. But in addition to that, we we really focused on the, the, the people, right? So for example, one of, my direct reports, she was saying that uh, school was like, school was closed and her husband lost her job. And she's like, and she was stressing out how she could do all that plus work. And I was just like, just focus on your family and you can fit in work behind that. And till this day, she still says like, that was like, she was in tears when I told her that, right? Cause and like, she's like her most loyal employee and she'll do anything to keep the company going. And so like letting her, employees focused on their families and themselves first and business second. And I think that was huge for us. Okay, Zach, um, I know you're busy. We're almost at an hour here, but I really appreciate uh, your time and, and uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, I don't get to have this conversation very much, so I like it. Thank you for interviewing me.